Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Pulmonary Palliative Medicine, We Belong Together. I'm here today with my co-host, Jennifer Wesco, and we have a very special guest that is here to talk with us today, and I'm going to let Jen take the lead on introducing her. Thank you, Patty. We're really, really happy that you're all able to join with us for this very uh, important podcast. There's been many discussions along the way in terms of and in with our support groups whom we work with, the topic of death, the topic of grieving, and to that point of ways for patients and families managing it. It has been in our topics, in our support groups, and ultimately through our Coffee with Care Partners support group, we have had care partners, loved ones pass away. And we are a very strong knit group, along with all of our other support groups, which then evolved into, well, what are we and how can we fill that void and that need of loved ones, the care partners of loved ones, and making sure that they are supported through the grieving process. And so through this, I've worked with Colleen Pellegrino for years, and we've talked about this. Uh, many a times, and we've created a grief support group. And so then this led led into um, the wonderful work with Patty with our podcast here with ATS. Um, So I'd like to introduce you to Colleen Pellegrino, a licensed clinical social worker, has her own practice, and has been with Wesco Foundation in support of patients and families and working with us in making sure that we provide that supportive care with folks who need it the most. So Colleen, I'll hand it over to you. Hi, Patty and Jen. It's nice to be here. My name is Colleen Madden Pellegrino, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker in the state of Pennsylvania. And when I'm not helping with uh, support groups through the Westco Foundation, I am an owner and a clinician at Summit View Counseling in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Welcome, Colleen. Thanks for joining us today. So what we wanted to try and focus this topic on today is really the perspective of both the patient with advanced lung disease, as well as their family and caregiver on the issue of dealing with grief and bereavement, particularly with the fact that the advanced lung disease patients often start earlier in their grieving process. You know, they have this anticipatory time that precedes you know, their end of life journey. And oftentimes those conversations may begin as early as in their clinician office, which then extends kind of in that continuity to home. But I was wondering to kind of hear your thoughts on how those conversations have gone with patients that you've encountered with lung disease, as well as maybe some pointers that our listeners could start with in terms of how to initiate that kind of a conversation you know, in the clinic setting, for example? Sure. I mean, those conversations are hard. It doesn't matter whether you're having them as a professional or as a person that's dealing with the issue in your own family. But talking about death is hard because nobody wants to discuss it because nobody likes the idea of knowing that not only are the conversations hard, but the topic and what comes with it is hard. It comes with a lot of emotions and a lot of planning and often lots of disagreements and viewpoints. And 
So it can get really complicated. But I think starting the conversation sooner makes it easier. And we all need to have that conversation with our family members because none of us are getting out of this life alive. You know, like we're all going to have to at some point face our mortality. And so I think it's just being the first step is being willing to have the conversation and start it somewhere and bringing up the topic and seeing where it leads to that time and then bringing it up again and seeing where it leads that time. Mm -hmm. But there's no way to make the conversation easier. It's just recognizing that it's going to be hard and starting from there. Yeah, and I think that that's really what we see in palliative medicine, right? That these conversations, when they begin to happen kind of earlier in this trajectory of illness, whether it's, for example, you know, advanced lung disease, which is what we're speaking about, but even if it's, you know, the initial time of diagnosis of a late stage cancer, mm-hmm. you know, these are conversations that kind of have to start happening. And, you know, what I have often found and what I try to teach forward is that these conversations are uncomfortable, but there's no reason that we have to dive into its entirety, you know, at this first visit or the first question. And I think that those are opportunities to kind of open the door, right? And to to kind of lay a little preliminary groundwork with the patient. And when you start with an advanced lung disease patient, for example, in clinic, you know, one good potential opening sentence could be something like, you know, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how serious this illness is. And for example, it's not curable. And so there are some changes we anticipate can happen down the line as this progresses. Can we talk a little about that today? Or can we explore that a little bit together? And so then every visit, you have this opportunity to build on it. But I've often found that where people get the most um, stuck feeling is that it's hard to bring the topic up because it's often at odds with our sense as clinicians, as medical providers, that we're here to help and to heal. Mm-hmm. And if we talk to you about end of life, there's this implication that we're no longer helping or healing or that it's like a giving up. And I think that that's maybe our first opportunity, you know, to teach the folks coming up behind us, our next generation, our colleagues who don't have that skill set, you know, from counseling and dialoguing and exploring tough issues like this, kind of what are some things we can say, you know, in an initial visit with a patient? So what would you say if you were meeting with a patient that first time and maybe they've just heard from their pulmonologist that they have this incurable lung disease? And so are those questions then that somebody in training or somebody in practice can then carry forward? I would encourage the clinicians to recognize that helping someone have a good death is caring and healing for Mm -hmm. them and their family. And that's defined by each person slightly different. But a good death is one where they feel like they've recognized and resolved things in life before they die, Mm -hmm. and that they're heard, and that people around them um, are also heard. And I think that's so important. So Ira Bayak, who's one of my icons in palliative care, has often said, you know, if we in medicine and healthcare do not attend to patients 
at this vulnerable stage, you know, at the time of a serious illness diagnosis, at the time of a progression in that serious illness diagnosis, then we're really leaving our patients and their families and their caregivers to fend for themselves at Mm -hmm. a time that they are so vulnerable and so, you know, struggling at these weaker points, you know, both emotionally and physically. And so there's a great opportunity, I think, for us as a profession in healthcare, you know, collectively, all of us, to get a better skill set. And then equally to offer the education. So this is what Jen's group does so marvelously is to get that education out there to say, are you talking to your providers about these issues? Have you asked these questions? Because I think people go home and wonder Mm -hmm. for sure. I think they go home and think, wow, well, I heard all this terrible news or that they said my CAT scan looked like advanced disease. And, but they're, they're kind of like, there's a dot here I need to connect Mm-hmm. but I'm not sure how to do that. And and I'm not sure that I should expect a patient to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that that's somewhat my obligation to kind of walk you down this right. path of connecting dots a little bit, because I'm the one who has the knowledge. Right. And so how do I translate that? Isn't know, it, it's, my... it's such a guidance that mm-hmm. you're a guide through this process. Not only are you going through a serious chronic medical condition, you're also going through this journey emotionally. And that component is, you know, the palliative medicine and pulmonary palliative medicine is essential, I think, through this whole process. Mm-hmm. In addition, acknowledging that this is an emotional process and up and down, back and forth, cyclical, non, you know, this process that we all go through. And, and it's important to be able to have resources to provide the patients and the families and having that discussion, exactly what we're doing here today. And just acknowledging that is the first step, I think. Colleen, what do you hear in practice from patients and families when they kind of talk about, or they even remotely try to bring up their awareness of a mortality that maybe they hadn't considered? What are some of the key words or common threads or things that you hear that maybe should be a sign for investigating that conversation further? Well, I think definitely being fearful or concerned or frustrated often in patients are frustrated because their family members aren't willing to accept the diagnosis. And, and if you can't get to a place of acceptance with a diagnosis, then it's harder to accept where that diagnosis is going to take you. Mm-hmm. And so having those conversations are harder if someone says, well, we don't have to worry about that because, you know, you're going to be fine or you're going to beat this. Well, with an advanced chronic lung disease, chances are you're not. And so recognizing that there are times where these conversations are more important than others. I really like giving families the resource of the conversationproject.org, which gives a physical workbook that you can work with yourself and with family members about questions to ask as you hit later stages of life and planning um, for end of life issues. It gives you questions to ask and you don't have to do the whole book in one sitting. Mm -hmm. Um, You can take it step by step or you can fill it out and then share it with your family or ask your family to fill it out 
And then you fill it out and compare your answers and see, all right, where are the areas that we're in agreement? Where are the areas where maybe we don't have the same vision of what things look like in who's going to care for you or what a, a funeral service might look like or what financial decisions need to be made. So it's a really good guide of giving people a place to start. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's such an important point to kind of share with everyone we come into contact with that there are these amazing resources, right? So the conversation project is one of them. There's the five wishes Mm -hmm. document that people can use that may be a little more straightforward for some folks. And I have, I can say that from a clinician standpoint, both in pulmonary practice, um, as well as now in, in more of a pure palliative practice, I will often give those documents to both my patient and their family member and kind of say, I'd like you both to fill this out. And then I'd like you to sit down and have a conversation about each other's wishes together. And then we're going to follow up in clinic next time about what your wishes are and kind of answer any questions you have and go ahead and write all over this. We'll use another one when you come back to clinic, you know, and sometimes the, the, comment that I see coming in, you know, from my colleagues is that part of the reason they don't want to have this conversation is because they genuinely come from this perspective of feeling that it may add to someone's suffering, Mm -hmm. you know, and that they're suffering enough, you know, they have this, this terrible illness, it's progressing, it's not fixable, but now we're going to tell them about the dying process and that's going to add to their suffering. And, you know, my counterpoint to that historically has been, I think, when you have a resistance to dying or to speaking Mm -hmm. about dying, that's often where the suffering can be amplified. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree with that. Anxiety is all about control. And Mm -hmm. when you're dealing with a chronic disease, you have very little control over how your day is going to go, how you're going to feel, what you can accomplish, you know, what uh, treatments are available to you. And, so you may also lose control of where you live and what you eat and all those things. Exactly. One thing you can have control over is knowing and deciding how, where, and who is going to be around to support you in the last stages of your life. And anxiety is often ramped up when you're trying to put energy towards the things that you can't control instead of putting energy towards the things that you can control. And so So if you can put energy where, where you can control things, Mm -hmm. do I want a DNR? Do I want to be at home? Those things that you may still have the power to do with making decisions for yourself, then there's less anxiety of what's going to happen. So you're not envisioning a hundred scenarios because you already know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And you also don't have time to focus on things that could happen because you already have a plan. And you're preparing your family, mm-hmm. right? You know, I very much look at this as we need to talk about some of these issues. So for example, if you want to be home, your family's got to know that because they may need to start making some plans and arrangements now, like speaking to their employer, you know, to say, I may need to take some time off or getting their FMLA forms filled out. And what I see, you know, on my practice is 
you know, I would say largely in the hospital right now. And a lot of times what we see is this conversation's happening in the hospital. And mm-hmm. then what, what comes up, of course, you know, and, and it's very normal, I feel, for someone to say, okay, if I have a limited time left, I want to be at home. You know, that's really where my heart is. That's where I'm happy. And then families can't really make that happen because it's just such a last minute, sh- you know, try to shuffle all things around or they can't get away from work or they're not even local, you mm-hmm. know, and they can't make those arrangements because now we're pressed into the schedule. And then a lot of times, you know, sometimes you get a request like, okay, well, just let them stay in the hospital for the next three or four weeks. And, you know, I'll make arrangements to come home. And it's like, they don't have that time, mm-hmm. you know? And then the the flip side is, well, none of us can do it. They'll have to go to a nursing home. And then you have this heartbroken patient. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have things like, we don't have enough things like general inpatient hospice facilities. We don't have enough type of hospice care homes that are more proximal to people, particularly, I think, you know, my, our practice here, like we're in rural areas. And if there's one thing you very quickly learn about practicing in rural areas is that they are number one, under-resourced. <laughs> and number mm-hmm. two, um, part of the art of surviving here is the creative thinking, you know, how do you problem solve? And Rural communities come together in different ways, right? You see civic communities, you see church ministries kind of coming together. There are organizations that will do, you know, ministry to those who are sick in their home as volunteers. So this isn't the technical care of a nurse, but you have a hospice nurse for that. Mm -hmm. And so what you really need is a caregiver or someone to kind of help provide you with some comfort and support your family a little bit. And you have some people, but again, those two can be very limited, the further or more rural Mm -hmm. um, life becomes for patients. And so I think that's often a place where when I hear this conversation, meeting some resistance in clinic, I kind of change tracks a little bit to say, you know, part of the reason this is so important to talk about is because we do have to make some plans Mm -hmm. so that we can honor what you want when it comes time for that to happen. So it's not that it's necessarily happening today. Mm-hmm. but everyone's got to know what you want or they can't do what you want. Right. You know, it's it- almost too like an adjustment period of mm-hmm. really grabbing a hold of your mortality. Mm-hmm. The best way that one can do as a patient, as a family member, but also as, you know, as a physician is giving them that gift of resources so that, you go in a direction as the family, as a patient and family to alleviate that anxiety to Mm -hmm. some level. Right. And, and the planning process is, gives that patient and the family that power. I think that's empowerment. Right. Empowerment and transition into Mm -hmm. that, that time when then you put what you've discussed and talked about, okay, now's here's our plan. It and then that ultimately releases, it reduces the anxiety. Sorry, Carleen, go ahead. I was going to say, it also gives the patient the respect to say, you are strong enough to handle this and mature enough and uh, empowered enough to make decisions for yourself. And although you may not be able to make all decisions, like I'm entrusting this with you, like this is your life. And it's also your exit, your grand exit. So Mm -hmm. make it yours. You know, I had a case in the last few weeks of a younger patient, you know, so 40s, 
-hmm. with a very advanced cancer, but who had really kind of beaten the survival odds of this cancer for about a year and a half longer than statistical averages say, you know, Mm -hmm. and who did so really with a very defined goal. I have a young child. I'm committed to doing what I can to be here as long as I can for this child. But I recognize that there's this inevitability. So, I mean, the patient's health literacy was really high, you know, so her understanding of this process was good. And she did all the things that you're supposed to do as far as she made arrangements for custodial transfer of her child. And she made financial arrangements to, you know, continue to provide for the care of her child and kind of engage these conversations with her family where it seemed to kind of stop though, over a couple of hospital visits we discovered is that she really didn't want to talk about her mortality, Mm -hmm. like the coming of that mortality. And these hospital admissions began to get more frequent, closer together. And we were really barreling down this path where like, I knew we were going to have to say, chemo is no longer helping you. It's hurting you. Mm -hmm. But you know, you've got to get the oncologist to kind of come on board and everyone's got to have this conversation together because you don't want the patient to feel that her care is fractured Mm -hmm. or teams are in, you know, diametric opposition to each other, anything like that. Mm -hmm. And ultimately kind of, we all kind of spoke to her together and she was already feeling that, you know? And, And so my answer was your instincts are right. You know, you felt the changes happening in your body you put that forward to us. We're really here to validate that for you today and to say, you're right. Mm-hmm. And how do we help you now? And what can we do for you now? And that arrangement piece, which I, you know, like two, three admissions ago. So a couple of months ago, I had kind of trying to been saying, you know, we kind of need to know a little bit more about what you want so we can plan for that. Well, it turns out the, the one thing she kind of harbored you know, deep within her heart that she hadn't shared is where she wanted to be at the end of her life. And it was not in her home Mm -hmm. because she just felt that her home just represented her illness at this point. And so she wanted to be in a specific family member's home. And that particular family member just really very honestly said, I don't think I can bear it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so then this patient went through this intense suffering, you know, like unloved and feeling unwanted. And we had to like really unpack that. But, you know, you have this intensity now because here we are in the hospital. I don't have the luxury of time. We've got to talk about the uncomfortable things now. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I ended up like, it was someone I would see like two, sometimes three times a day and each time a little bit at a time, you know, what's the next thing. Mm -hmm. And so finally, like, I remember like the end of the first day. So visit three day one, I I really said, I think what I need you to try and focus on tonight is to forgive this person for their limitations, but to also understand that they're being so honest at a time that's so hard. And it would be a lot worse if they tried to force themselves to do something that then didn't work. And then everybody's scrambling because they're going to be like, no, this can't happen here. And the person who would suffer is you. And, and, you know, maybe we can work on finding a path through that forgiveness and how do we help you now with that? And so, you know, by a couple of days later, we were in a better place, but you know, same thing. I don't want you to focus on the hurts at this point. You know, I always say to people like life is precious when time is short. How do we make 
this time meaningful for you? And what do you need for that to happen? And so we switched focus, you know, let's talk about legacy projects, which I think is part of that anticipatory grief, bereavement, and the dying process. So can we be helping our patients with those things? And I think there, I think that's all stuff we could be talking about in clinic and routine visits. I don't think that's really unique to just at the close proximity to end of life. And yeah, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, Colleen? Like what kind of legacy projects have you kind of suggested to people in the past? I really like the idea of thank you notes mm-hmm. to leave for people. They're short. You can be concise. You can do a lot of them without them being overwhelming. And you don't have to write like 10 pages of everything you've ever done or appreciated about the uh, mm-hmm. person. So I like the idea of thank you notes. It's less pressure to think of filling a short space of a thank you note than it is, you know, a notebook of things. So I really like that. I think that your point about at the end, when people's emotions get higher and higher, that it's harder to make decisions because when your emotions are high, it's harder to, you know, enact your logical brain. And it often comes out in anger. And I find that anger is fueled by fear. So if asking your patient or their family members, if they're getting really angry about something, what is your fear? And, you know, like it sounded like your patient's fear was that that meant that, you know, their relative didn't care about them enough or was rejecting them. And and so I think those things are really important. Legacy projects are important. It can be a recording. It can be drawing little pictures. It it doesn't have to be anything grand. It has to be what's important to the person that is leaving it and having them pick things in their house that they own that they want to leave for somebody can be really empowering to make those decisions. Absolutely. And it also saves a lot of arguing and emotional um, conflict in the family afterwards if those decisions are already made and everybody mm-hmm. already knows what they are then you're mm-hmm. not fighting over stuff later because everyone's feeling emotional and mm-hmm. it's often the family members that don't have the hard conversations that have the hardest grief recovery mm-hmm. correct so true you know i had reached out so the american association of hospice and palliative medicine has Um, a forum called an open forum or connect, which is where hospice and palliative medicine providers across the U.S. can kind of connect with each other and have dialogues about clinical issues and and things that may be coming up in their practice, whether that's, you know, psychosocial or existential distress or symptom management, whichever category it needs to go under. And there was a point at which I felt, you know, I think we could do more to help patients with these legacy type projects, but what are some ways to make that easier? Like you've pointed out, it does not have to be these big grand scenarios and people in their heads are like, I got to get a camera and do these special recordings. Like, no, I think you could do like a simpler, you know, here's a notebook, write a letter to who you want and I'll bring you envelopes and we'll, you know, address them together. And one of the respondents on the connect forum actually said, there's a great product on Amazon called compendium notes and there's different categories of them there's one like for birthdays there's one that are just thank you and there's smaller little notes and you can just kind of like you said jot down a few sentences it's meant to not tax the person that's doing the note completion 
but like the thank you notes or the the birthday notes can be used like for someone who's leaving a child behind mm-hmm. and they can like fill a note out for every year or something like that. And so, you know, I, I had a grant at the time of my prior organization. I had a, I had a, obtained a grant. And so I was building a palliative resource library and I had initially focused like these efforts on pediatric resources, because again, it's rural health. We didn't have a child life program. We didn't really have pediatric support. So, you know, you had to start somewhere that because then my grant grew a little bit, we were able to expand that to, you know, an adult resource library. And so now we could do like caring for the caregiver Mm -hmm. support as well. And so we bought, um, I I ended up buying like a hundred of them. Wow. That's great. And so we're able to just kind of distribute these to patients you know, who are in the right time frame, really, to kind of say, you know, here's a way that you can work on some legacy stuff. And I think we did the same thing, you know, with this patient in the hospital as well, just kind of like, you know, let me get you some paper, let me get you some notes, cards, and we can help get some stuff started for you to leave for your child. Because it's clear she had thought about it, but she just hadn't gotten to that point. And I think to your other point, being able to tell your family or specific family members, like, here's how I want to share some things when I'm no longer here. Equally important. You know, I had a patient that I can publicly share her name. It was Betsy. I took care of her with pulmonary fibrosis for going on seven or eight years. Um, her story was shared on the Center to Advance Palliative Care under a patient spotlight story. Um, really remarkable woman who just kind of faced her illness as head on as she could, but she asked a lot of hard questions, you Mm -hmm. know, to providers, both at the primary care level and then kind of working her way up to specialist level. Mm -hmm. And Betsy did exactly that. She kind of sat down with her husband. She was super organized, you know, so she had a list of lists kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And she had a list written out, like, here are the things I want to go to specific people. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of that was, I don't want the kids fighting over stuff. Part of that was, there's some things that, you know, she had this small group of friends. These women were her tribe. They had been friends for 50 plus years. And I hear some things I want to go to specific friends. And, you know, when she died, I think we were all terribly sad, but she also was able to die at home with hospice and her friends and family were with her. And it was exactly what she wanted because Mm -hmm. we had had so many conversations about this over, you know, seven years. But a couple of weeks after she died, her husband sent something in the mail to my office And I opened it and it was a little glass heart, like a little paperweight. And it was, you know, like pink and white swirls, really pretty, happens to be my favorite color. Um, That was coincidental. But he put this lovely, (laughs) well, I don't know if she knew that. I mean, I don't know if she truly knew that, but he put a note in there saying, you know, she wanted you to have this because her conversations with you and those visits were so good for her heart. And she had this you know, terrible right-sided heart failure that comes with advanced lung disease. Mm -hmm. And she used to kind of, she apparently said to her husband, something along the lines of, I may have a weak heart, but having these visits and having someone to talk to who's not afraid to have a conversation with me about the stuff I'm asking about made my heart feel better. And so, you know, I kind of like you get something like that and it stops you for a minute because you're just going along in practice and you're like, oh my God. So now I keep that kind of front and center to kind of remind me mm-hmm. all the time. That's, there's, and that's what I wanted to kind of bring up to people. There's this great quote from Ira Bayek that says, 
often when a physician cannot imagine what else to do for someone who is feeling helpless and hopeless, for whom life may have no value, I find that love is the answer. And I think that's a terrific Mm -hmm. place to start. You know, and I, I say that to the residents, I say that to fellow attendings, kind of like, you know, when people are like, I don't know where to start. I don't know what to say. I'm like, start from a place of love. You know, this mm-hmm. every person is a human. Mm-hmm. Let's just start from there. Beautiful. And I think that's where lung disease patients, you know, have both an advantage and a disadvantage. When they get sick, they're really sick. Some of these advanced diseases, especially like pulmonary fibrosis and the other interstitial diseases. But some of the patients with progressive COPD are just getting sicker over longer periods of time. And so there's just this opportunity, I think, for us as pulmonary medicine and you know, palliative and pulmonary providers to kind of get into these conversations up front mm-hmm. and, and start digging into this a little. Because I think if we do that with our patients, we help their families and their mm-hmm. caregivers too. What a gift. Yeah. And sometimes the easiest way to start the conversations is with humor, like asking who you're going to haunt mm-hmm. <laughs> and who, you know, uh, there was a, a article I read recently where someone, a woman died and as a gift to all of her grandchildren, um, she sent um, Ouija boards with a note that said, <laughs> let's keep in touch. That's fantastic. Oh, that's great. You know, like, so, you know, oh, coming up with humor, uh, whether it's now or later, like humor is a great way to make everyone just go, okay, and just kind of get there in a way that makes it a little less for everybody, but just acknowledging this is really hard. And and just saying that, right? Just Mm -hmm. for us as providers, just say that to a patient because Mm -hmm. it's it's there. They feel it. So just say it out loud. Be the person who has the courage to say it out loud. Put it on the table. Now we're all going to look at it. Mm -hmm. It's out there now. This is really hard. This can and it's okay for the provider to also say this is hard for me too Mm -hmm. because I want to do more. I'm trained to want to fix things. And I have now this unfixable thing. And again, you know, equally reassuring sometimes is to just really sit there with them in that time and that presence to be able to say, no matter what, you're not alone. Right. You know, there's a team here where we're all going to be on this journey with you. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason we want to have these conversations with you now is so that we know the things you want. And so that we honor that as we walk this path with you. So we don't bring things up to you that maybe aren't even remotely near what you want, but that also we're able to look out for your spouse or your child or whoever's doing your caregiving to say, how can I also support you? And that's, I think that niche where palliative medicine kind of comes in and really shines because we kind of bring the resources forward and say, you know, here are the ways we can help not just this patient with quality of life, symptom management, et cetera, but then also through this dialogue, bringing in the right resources, support from, social work colleagues and counseling, sometimes chaplaincy, depending on Mm -hmm. a person's personal preferences, we can then kind of make this space um, for this very organic, easy conversation to be started openly Mm -hmm. and then continue for them. I'm thankful for the work you do, Colleen. It's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. We're very lucky. I'm glad that we, we came together. Um, It's just interesting how the topic 
clearly comes up in a cyclical way through our support groups. And I'm just so grateful that we're, you know, be able to sit down here and just have that honest conversation. It, it, you know, we've mentioned many times it's a difficult conversation. So, you know, if anybody can use any part of this conversation and be in a way um, uh, have a, a new refreshing perspective of how to approach it, it's, it's a win. So I appreciate you guys. And I think for anyone, you know, listening to our podcast and practice or beginning their practice, really being able to integrate some of these talking maps, some of these assistive resources into your practice early will help make the process of caring for your patients much easier and more engaged. So, you know, thank you again for joining us today for another very exciting conversation that's always so much good information for advanced lung disease patients i feel like we could probably go twice as long um, <laughs> for these for these podcasts and still yes. have more to talk talk about Absolutely. but um you know on behalf of jen wesco i'm patricia fogelman with the ats podcast pulmonary palliative care we belong together thank you for listening thank you